Hello, and welcome back to the Annex. My name is Koi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Gillian Kerr, who is the founder of Logical Outcomes, which is a nonprofit based out of Toronto, which I've been working with on and off for a number of years. She also just happens to be my mother. Uh, the two of us have a bit of a rambling conversation uh, that touches on data security, monitoring and evaluations, uh, technology. But uh, it's a lot of fun, very engaging. I mean, I'm quite biased. So I hope you enjoy listening. Uh, if you do, I'd love to have Gillian on again. Uh, so without further ado, I suppose, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gillian Kerr. Yeah, yeah, we, we're here to talk about privacy, okay. specifically GDPR. Okay. All right, yes. And I, I sent you um, I sent you the link on Zencaster. Zencaster is one of these things that I'm monitoring because I think it's interesting. And uh, it's really they, good. They now have they have the free level, twenty bucks a month level, and two hundred and fifty dollars a month level. So it's like. What's the difference between oh, what do they offer? Um, the free is up to two guests, recording eight hours a month, recording in high quality MP3, and then pay per use post production. And then a professional mm. is 20 bucks a month. It's unlimited guests, unlimited recordings, live editing soundboard, which you didn't have right. before. Right. Which, if you're not going to have people in the room, it's kind of nice to have. Yeah, it and is. And then yeah. uh, people you are record in 16-bit uh, 44.1 wave and 10 hours automatic post-production a month. So pretty good. Yeah. And then the 250 bucks a month, that's what they've been moving towards, and that's coming soon. That's super pro level. Yeah, but they... But they uh, what I like about them is that it's building, like it's got that kind of... Um, mm. It's really good because uh, I, I listen, obviously, to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. And there's, there's like two or three tiers of audio quality. Mm -hmm. um, there's kind of like your basic, like I'm recording on my computer's microphone or I'm recording on whatever and uh, at home. Yeah. And yep. that can be kind of rough. Yeah. And then there's... Like, okay, I have a kind of a microphone. One of us has a microphone, but yeah. someone's calling in from Skype, or so it sounds really bad. And Zencaster now has its own channel. It's not through Skype. Okay. So it has its own VoIP client. Wow. And so there, it's as high as the hardware can handle. It's saving right. it on the computer. Well, that's then, the best part, right? And, the, and then it automatically... Yeah, uh, stitches it. Uh, but also, yeah, stitches it. Like, it's great. Yeah, no, I remember when we used it before, because yeah. the biggest thing is that it takes out all the... The, the quality loss. Yeah, through, exactly. The wow, streaming. the woo woo, wow wow. Yeah, yeah, and just you lose you lose the depth of a voice, yeah, right? Yeah. Even when you're using a great, because yeah. it would be good to do like a. In general, probably a good way to do interviews with you would be using your, your headset. That's right. Through, through Zencaster. Zencaster, and we can try that. Because mm -hmm, then you feel comfortable, and when we're recording locally, that's a really good microphone. That's right. But I feel like you'd still hear a difference between that microphone and this one. I bet, but then I have to come here, and it's it's a whole different thing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, with Zencaster, we can they have a trial. So with the twenty bucks a, a month, so you could try the live. Um, you know the yeah. Well, and, and also the good thing about it is I can be like what I have now set up is like I can do up to three people in the room. Yeah. Uh, and what the mixer does is the mixer, you can bring a Skype call through the mixer uh, with another cable or so. And then you can actually, 
it's called a, mi- a mix minus. I have to figure out some of this stuff, mm-hmm. but the mix minus is you actually send the audio minus the Skype call person back to them right. so they get to hear the everyone else and well, you can do a lot of complex stuff with the mixer but basically well, you'll you'll have to decide wh- whether you're yeah because this is online versus um not online really well the beauty the beauty is though that like we could for example talk the two of us here uh-huh. and we could call someone uh in a different location and have them on the line and so all three of us are talking and it's being recorded so i am uh well i thought i uh I pulled up that GDPR um, PowerPoint, and then, uh, ah, here we go. So okay, GDPR, so. yeah, this yeah. is, so this is the big, this is the big next step in data security, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's a, so are, let are me ask some dumb questions. All right, so you're now recording? We've, we've been recording for a while. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this is it's funny actually when when you hear podcasts of of guests who have never been on podcasts right. they kind of usually within the first ten minutes are like so where are we going to start at some point and yeah. the host's like we've been we've <laughs> been started <laughs> um, is GDPR a policy is it an EU policy is it a law is it a convention I'm you know uh, okay. starting from the basics okay starting from the basics um, GDPR is a regulation so it's the General Data Protection Regulation mm-hmm. it was passed by the European Union in uh, May last year, so a year ago. Which would be 2018. 2018. Yeah. And um, also the UK has adopted it. Even if uh, they leave uh, the EU, they've uh, committed to adopting GDPR. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, as you see, it's a regulation. It's a law. I'm not a lawyer. GDPR is extremely complicated. Right. So um, uh, I've got an amateur's understanding of GDPR and... Uh, Right, we're not asking you in terms of what happens if you break the law or yeah, the regulation. It, it, That's yeah, not our question if, here. If, if you break, what's nice uh, about GDPR is that it is, it has huge uh, penalties if you're in the EU. So it has a uh, okay. percentage of your entire revenues as opposed to your profits. So wow. it's a big deal. It's got teeth to it. And okay. before GDPR, privacy regulations were massively different in different countries and uh, often not um, that the laws may have been on the books but uh, they weren't uh, tended not to be um, enforced enforced mm-hmm. um, it's especially difficult to enforce it when you have uh, an international technology company and you don't know who which law applies to what's going on with right. privacy right. because um, you know something happens and the information is available through multiple uh, countries mm-hmm. and um, so GDPR pulls it together and make uh, standardizes it across EU and because of the size of EU then it becomes relevant worldwide mm. and then it um, has all of these incredibly tough um, uh, processes and uh, penalties to make technology companies actually pay attention to it right and just so because you're saying is the fact of EU being large enough that the world has to kind of recognize GDPR as the cat complains um, but there are other regulations that other countries and uh, alliances have they made, or is it just yeah. is this the only kind of international regulation? 
So this, this is where I, I get nervous because I'm not a lawyer, and much of what I read about this was uh, last year. But this is more uh, just to get a kind of yeah, pur- purview so of the uh, overview. Shape of, privacy yeah. regulations um, vary widely worldwide. Mm-hmm. Canada is not bound by GDPR directly. Okay. Neither is the states. It's for the residents of the European Union, mm-hmm. and um, and I've heard. Um, uh, and, and read arguments about whether it's all residents of EU only when they're in the EU. Does it also include res, uh, citizens of EU even if they're not in the EU? Oh, okay. Um, I've heard arguments about whether it applies to uh, companies that may have a branch location with maybe one part-time staff person anywhere in the EU, but most of their work happens um, elsewhere and uh, personal data is gathered elsewhere and used elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of, uh, th- there will be a lot of uh, clarification over the next few years. Okay. Um, what I really like about GDPR yeah. as a psychologist is that it takes privacy seriously. And from my perspective as a psychologist that's been working in evaluation, um, it has often been the case that evaluation, um, surveying, uh, monitoring has not really taken privacy seriously. And um, by that, I, I mean that uh, 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 privacy is difficult to achieve. You know, it's a, it's, um, there's a lot of ways that privacy can be breached. Right. And uh, t- to take privacy seriously, you have to think about not only training, but also really careful role-based permissions and encryption and processes and who has access to what data. It's so complicated and it's so difficult that most nonprofits, in in my experience, have just said it's too expensive and difficult. And so they make attempts towards it, but they're not serious about it. And GDPR has forced that, at least in the EU. Now, to go back to your question about different countries and different privacy regulations... Mm -hmm. Every country has its own privacy regulations. Uh, Canada, for example, has PIPIDA. Um, I can't remember what it stands <laughs> for. It's a good acronym. Yep. It also has uh, FIPA, um, okay. which is, uh, I think, the personal health information um, uh, uh, privacy regulations in Ontario. So every province and territory wow. in Canada has its own regulations. Okay. And the regulations, um, there may be more than one uh, set of regulations per province based on what kinds of data you're talking about. So you have educational, uh, uh, personal data Mm -hmm. in educational settings and health settings and so on. And so it's very complicated. No, this is interesting. I'm kind of going in circles because uh, you're going to keep us in terms of centered on track and uh, for the highly specialized people who are interested. And I want to, I like going to the the edges a little bit sometimes. Okay. Just because for me and for someone who might not be like totally... um, deep into security, data security. Uh, some of the only data security that I think I would consider in terms of like general knowledge or in the general zeitgeist would be kind of personal consumer information that like with social media is being capturing and all this sort of stuff and then national security stuff. Like okay. the stuff that Snowden uh, is in trouble with and all like WikiLeaks and everything. Right. And so what's interesting, I know a little bit about this and so it is a it is a loaded question but it's, you know, there's this difference between um, the, this, what I, the, the national security and the consumer uh, information, and there's a quite a large area of data uh, and privacy that 
that we're talking about here that GDPR covers and that you normally work with, okay. which is kind of an area of privacy I think most people don't consider or think about because it's it's this information being used in areas we don't think about uh, our information existing, right, in these data sets. And so I'm, um, I'm realizing that what I want is a little pad of paper with with uh, a pen because I, I... To I, take I, notes? Yeah, well, I yeah. forget what the questions are when they're long and complicated yeah. uh, because... Uh, You've asked it. Oh, okay, fantastic. All right. So, um, so this was first. First thing I wanted to yeah. talk about was what privacy means. Yeah. And and so you were talking about security and privacy, and privacy uh -huh. is a subset of security. So information security mm -hmm. uh, has three elements. One of them is privacy. Right. The second is integrity, and the third is availability. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, if you have uh, information that's really really private but it's completely corrupted and messed up so that nobody can read it. Right. Uh, it may be private, but it's not available, so it's kind of useless. Right. Or um, actually that... That uh, the integrity actually Actually, that, that was that integrity, integrity and availability. That's right. Yeah. So, so that would be integrity. Um, if you have something that's private and you put it in a, a lead box and you've buried it six miles underground, then mm -hmm. it's totally private, it's totally unavailable, so it's useless. Right. So when you talk about security, you're talking about, is the information good quality? Can I get at it? Is it private? Is it protected? Yeah. Um, and um, then when you look at privacy, uh, there's generally when one talks about privacy, uh, one's talking about personal data. And right, okay. Yeah. Personal data is defined in the GDPR to be um, uh, to cover a huge range of information. So okay. in some um, privacy regulations, personal data refers to data that with a name, an address, uh, a social insurance number, like if, if it's got uh, information that's identifiable, mm -hmm. then it's personal data. Right. If it's aggregated and it's hard to uh, figure out who it is, Sometimes the regulation doesn't define it as personal data, and GDPR so is like much a, tougher. If it's more like an elect electoral zone or ward or something like that, it might be considered. Or if it's uh, the first three letters of a postal code, it's more generic. Well, first th three letters. This is where I'm gonna uh, sink down into this uh, maze. Uh, certainly, the first three digits of a personal uh, of a postal code is personal data. Really. Well. Because isn't it like broad enough that you wouldn't be able to find someone's um, house? Well, um, this I would have to go back to the reference, but yeah. I, I know that it, there's something like if you yeah. know somebody's date of birth mm -hmm. and they're the first three letters of the postal code, you can probably figure out who it is. Right, right. You just need it. It's, it's about cross-referencing. Cross-referencing. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, the more sophisticated the uh, di data mining gets, the more... The um, less you need from each specific point. That's right. Point. The, the, the better people can uh, de-anonymize data. Right. And uh, so you've seen this over and over again with large data sets, like uh, tracking uh, the movement of cars or taxis. Yeah, uh, that's happened And then being able recently. to figure out who people are, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, GDPR defines personal data as including not only names and identification and address and so on. Mm -hmm. It also includes opinions, uh, wow. union membership, okay. um, and uh, attributes like, uh, you know, height, se uh, sexual orientation, uh, okay. things like that. So it applies to characteristics that you might be able to figure out by context, 
by using these de-anonymizing data uh, mining tools. Uh-huh. So it spreads a wider wider coverage over personal. What, yeah. what, what could be considered personal? It's very broad, with uh, the definition of personal data. Interesting. Now, again, as I keep saying, I'm not a lawyer. What's meaningful uh, right. to me is that um, as a psychologist, it means now when I um, talk about personal data and privacy, um, the GDPR definition of privacy and personal data is closer to what I would regard as being personal data from the perspective of a clinical psychologist, which hmm. is that uh, you know we've got an ethical duty to protect people's privacy, and we have to think about all the different ways that their privacy should be breached. Um, and so um, my experience a few years ago is when I talked about privacy, it, it, it wasn't, as I said, earlier taken seriously. Well, speaking, uh, jumping on this point, continuing yeah. with this idea, because you, you said it earlier and you've just come back to yeah. it, which is the idea of um, privacy, data security, not being treated seriously, yeah. in, in, in uh, at least in Canada, maybe, or by certain sectors. Um, so looking in terms of like worst case scenario worldwide and then more specifically towards within Canada or Toronto or Ontario, kind of within more mm -hmm. where we're recording this, what are the, what are kind of, you know, scary stories or reasons why uh, privacy, I guess I'm looking for kind of like why is privacy so important and uh, going worldwide and then in Canada looking at kind of examples of maybe why it's bad or, or right. things that could have happened or almost happened or did happen. Right. Um, and cause I, cause I also think, you know, it's, it's easy to say, Oh, in a, in a, in a, in s there's a lot of countries in the world where, uh, the rule of law isn't necessarily, uh, strictly enforced and the people with power, uh, will do s things that we in Canada might consider <laughs> extremely wrong. Um, so we could imagine some horror stories around the world, but also, understanding and I, but I'd like to hear them kind of in, if you have any specifically um, but also then like how it would work and what what could happen in Canada because we think of Canada uh, at least as a citizen I think of Canada you know as, as more responsible around data use and and following the rule of law but obviously there's still major things that can come out of it but I guess for yeah. people listening and for me to kind of like well what does that actually mean like what does yeah. it mean when you don't take it seriously oh, okay good questions um in uh, so some examples, um, I was at a conference uh, recently on um, technology for nonprofits, and somebody was talking about being in a war zone mm -hmm. and uh, in a, in a health facility during a civil war, and uh, soldiers were coming into the city, and their um, health records had ethnicity or religion for each uh, person clearly enough so that uh, soldiers could use it to identify people to kill them or to jail them. Based and on their ethnicity. Beth, or, based or on religion. ethnicity or religion. Right. And uh, this health center had not encrypted the data. So the staff people were at the top of the building throwing down hard drives onto um, the road, trying to break them apart before the soldiers re reached the facility. So that's an example of poor um, planning. And, uh, and a good example of how bad the outcome can be if it's you don't protect your... It's irresponsible to yeah. collect uh, health data and not encrypt it. Right. Uh, and um, Or have some magnets ready to, to drop on no, it. No, that's <laughs> not... Uh, but but it, it, it does speak to threat models. Uh, so every time you talk about privacy and security, mm -hmm. um, when you're protecting privacy and security, uh, 
you have to think about the threat model, which is Mm -hmm. in your fantasies, what is going to happen to it? And so to have a magnet in your threat model, you have to have somebody standing there with a a magnet while somebody is trying to break in physically. Right. That doesn't usually happen (laughs) in a hospital. (laughs) Right, yeah. But um, a more realistic threat model for Mm -hmm. health information based on um, studies that are coming out, uh, um, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, most, um, most health breaches are from staff people inside right. the health facility. Right. And it's either that they're not following processes and mm-hmm. leaving files around, or it's out of curiosity. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, Just human curiosity. Human curiosity. A celebrity checked in. Right. Uh, and they want to find out why the celebrity is there, and they and they are able to dig into the files. Right. And so the threat model to protect yourself from an insider is totally different from the threat model right. from a hacker or from yeah. outside. Yeah, or even a friend of a friend or exactly. someone who's in your social network or That's extended right. social network that you recognize a name or a face. That's right. And you, if you have the access to follow through on exactly. that. Exactly. It takes huge amounts of willpower to prevent yourself from yeah. looking up a health record from somebody you're really interested in. Especially when you have access. When you have access. And people, yeah. generally speaking, don't have massive amounts of willpower. Right. And uh, that's the problem. And um, so, uh, oh, what was I... Um, well, it's interesting because physically, um, while you think about that, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of reminds me, like, there's... When it comes to, th- I like the, was it threat assessment? Threat model. Threat model. I like that word. Um, yes, a lovely It's expression. a good one. Yeah. But I think physically, people are fairly capable of intuiting or understanding uh, threats and, and kind of assessing potentialities when, when you know um, an area that you might work in, for example, and it's a physical thing. Yeah. Right. Okay. What are the risks of fire? Like we're pretty good with that. We yeah. have a lot of rules, and it's pretty uh, easy to understand. If someone says this is a fire risk. Everyone can kind of say, okay, I gotta get that idea, because mm-hmm. uh, we all know what happens when fires happen. But the intuitive, I think, data security and privacy is because it's not physical for the most part now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so easy to to not think of it in the same way. Yeah. You know, it's it, uh, to be able to access someone's data that we were just talking about through secu- uh, through curiosity because of curiosity or something uh-huh. like that um it's one thing when it's just a file and you just have someone's file yeah but uh representation of that is like or an ex- uh, you know th- it's 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 almost the same as as seeing someone in the gym that you recognize and then going and breaking into their locker mm-hmm. um because you can pick the lock mm-hmm. right it's they're both breaches yeah it's just because one's not one doesn't re- one doesn't require the breaking of a physical lock and it doesn't require this thing it it feels like it's more okay or it doesn't you it's 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 easier to ignore the the breaches are bigger so if you open a paper file and show it to the person next to you in the desk that's one thing if you then upload it to the internet and then it's available to thousands of people like the scale is different instantly and um one of the i I was uh, talking about research i wanted to come back to that because uh gdpr is in force one Mm -hmm. uh, one of the requirements around gdpr is that um organizations must report breaches within 24 hours or so wow and uh, so we're starting to get all this information about breaches. <laughs> and so security analysts are, um, are, are analyzing the breaches to see where they are, where the problems are. And that's how mm. we're finding out, you know, with hospitals, it's internal. You've got staff people. Mm. Uh, and then um, so that's helping us understand what the threat model is. 
So this is dealing with a specific thing in monitoring and evaluation, which is exactly. acknowledging the failures so That's that right. you can actually yeah, fix exactly. them. That's right. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so there's a bunch of things we know about security. One is that uh, secure in security works by making things inconvenient. Right, <laughs> it's Th- such a lovely description, but yeah. yes, yeah. And so you want to you want to go and get some money. You have to um, go and you know f- find your visa, or you have to sign sign uh, dual get factor into the bank. authentication. Yeah, exactly. And and inconvenience makes people crazy, and they and they try to get around it. And so if you design security badly, what you're doing is is creating big incentives for your insiders to get around it. Um, you were talking about uh, uh, fire protection. So yeah. fire doors are a major protection. Yeah. But if the fire door, if you don't have enough ventilation, then people will prop open, the, prop fire open door. the fire door. That's right. And their, yeah. their protection's gone. Yeah. And so um, uh, digitally, if you make passwords too uh, difficult to manage, then people will write them down on a Post-it note and put them on their, um, you know, in their top right file drawer. So this is what's funny about this is it's it, listening to this. I just think of of uh, all these movies that are written about you know security failures. Yeah, and that's part of the plot. Yeah, and it's either it's either far too easy for the characters to kind yeah. of figure it out because someone just hid the keys here. Or yeah, put the put the you know in a video game. There's always these uh, the codes someone left on a on a sticky note. Exactly. Well, they do. But then uh, uh, the other time is you know you. You think of like some of the best films, like the first Mission Impossible movie with all the crazy knock list and him falling in from the top is because they designed in their world, in the script, they designed an actually pretty good security system and then they had to work themselves through how do you get... Makes it more fun, yeah. Makes it more fun to watch. That's right, exactly. You have to be more creative. Yeah, Yeah, so um, with security breaches... um, you, social engineering is a very common way of uh, getting access. So social engineering, somebody comes in and says, you know, I've uh, there's a reason that I have to get somebody's file. And you just trick another human into giving you access. Right. Uh, as opposed to guessing a password. So there's lots of different ways you can get hold of... Um, That's an age-old method. Age-old <laughs> method. And so the way that you handle social engineering, partly, is mm-hmm. through role-based... I think I'm getting boring... Um, no, this is so. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pop this too. Yeah, uh, I've I've been doing Uber Eats for a little while. Yeah, delivering food on my bicycle, mm-hmm. and uh, most of the time in Toronto, I go to apartment buildings. Yeah, and so apartment buildings have these buzzers, exactly buzzer codes. That's right. And and each building has a different model mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how they actually enforce it. Mm-hmm. So some buildings um, they have a buzzer code system. Um, and there's usually a concierge desk as well is like kind of the standard yeah. model. And then whether or not people will just let you in kind of as they're walking in and they'll kind of open the door for you is one thing. Some buildings will have a sign that says like, do not open for random people, please. Yes, yeah. Uh, another one says, you know, some others will say, we will never open for this, you know, kind of yeah. variation. Yeah. Um, And then some places I can kind of sneak in and they'll they'll kind of, I'll say, hey, I need to deliver to somewhere. And the concierge is like, why are you even asking me this? Like, keep yeah. going. Yeah. And other places, the concierge is like, where are you going? Hey, 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 come here. I need your name. You need to sign. That's a good example. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, uh, one of the most extreme examples is um, uh, one place downtown where I have to get 
buzzed in. Once I get buzzed in, then I have to go to the concierge desk and tell them I've been buzzed in. Then they open up the inner door to let me yeah. go to the elevators. Yeah. Uh, and if I don't get both of those permissions, then I can't get in. Yeah. And then, of course, some buildings, the concierge can unlock the floor number in the elevator. And without that, you can get into the elevator, yeah. but you're not going anywhere. Right. So there's all these levels That's of security. Exactly, yes, yeah. And what's interesting is even some of the buildings that have it worked out, yeah. they kind of don't use it. Yeah, because it's a pain. Oh, it's a total pain. Yeah. It's a total pain for, for you know, for everyone trying to get in who who doesn't have the FOB key code or whatever. You have to get special permission if the concierge is dealing with someone else or a delivery person or if they're on a break or, you know, uh, it adds time mm-hmm. for everyone who's trying to just come in and out and drop something off. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, all those things steps are supposed to design s- to s- prevent someone from walking off the street yeah. and getting to the front door of your apartment yeah. uh, in on the 47th floor. Right. And a lot of people on the 47th floor might not lock their front apartment right. because it's yeah. in a hallway. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it's interesting kind of, and I say all this kind of to, sh- to talk about kind of what you're talking about and, and the inconvenience of security and Toronto is in a different place. Cause in, in Manhattan, uh, you can't go past the lobby of almost every single building in Manhattan without going through a turnstile, signing and talking to a, a security guard. Right. First things first, because right. security is such a bigger deal in Manhattan yeah. than it is in Toronto. Yeah. So they have this very different design as well. So everything's centralized to that first person. You don't have to do a bunch of different things. But it also means that uh, you're not getting in without having signed in. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, it's all very physical representation. It's of physical. Kind of what you're that's about. right. So, so let's um, let me describe what I mean by a threat model having to do with evaluation data. Yeah. So, um, we first of all we define personal data loosely as anything that might identify somebody. Even if it's just one piece of a multi-pronged anything, anything that might identify somebody, yeah. and you look at the risk of identifying. And okay. so, say you've got um, uh, a program in East Toronto, and mm-hmm. it's for young people, mm-hmm. and it's an employment program. Right away, you're only dealing with a few hundred people. Right. So anybody that knows, oh, there's a young person that lives in East Toronto, and he goes to this agency. You're looking at a very small group. And then you ask information, um, say gender, uh, you've got female, male, gender diverse. Mm -hmm. So somebody uh, marks themselves as gender diverse, you probably know within maybe maybe 10, a a dozen dozen people who it is. Statistically. That's right. (laughs) And then you ask them, uh, you know, what are your suggestions around the program? So do you have any complaints? And they say, you know, I really, really hate this place and and somebody treated me badly. You probably know exactly who that person is. With that qualitative data on top of it. Exactly. So... um, you know that that person is vulnerable. They, uh, it's possible that a staff person might be angry. They uh, might be penalized for that. Mm-hmm. So as an evaluator, how do you protect them? Um, but that's a difficult question because that involves a lot of different people. So one thing we could do is say we won't ask any demographic questions at all. Um, when we ask for suggestions, we want people to feel comfortable. So we're going to say it's going to be really difficult to... Um, 
figure out who you are. So please give us suggestions, but make sure you remove all personal identification, anything that might identify you. So don't talk about, uh, you know, John Smith did this, uh, because you might be able to figure it out. But it is a bit of a self-selecting group, because not everyone knows or is able to self-monitor in that way. Well, exactly. Everything yeah. you do has problems. Mm -hmm. and, and so... The fun part of this work is that it's an ethical minefield, and, and <laughs> it, it's like designing this mission impossible uh, uh, system. Right. So you say, first of all, informed consent. You ask for consent. So you say it's a young person. They may or may not be um, literate in English. You ask as clearly as you can for permission, and you mm -hmm. say, um, we're, uh, we, we're not asking you information that might identify you, but also please don't say things that could help people guess who you are. Right. And here is, these are the people that are going to see this information. And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. It's completely optional. So there's a lot of elements around conform informed consent that need to be put in place because it's a, sh it's, it's a sort of shared agreement. Yep. So that's, that's one piece that has to be put in place for responsible use of personal data. Mm -hmm. The second, as I mentioned before, you can minimize the amount of personal data you ask. So you can say, we won't ask gender, we won't ask age, we won't ask anything about them. Well, that makes analysis more difficult if right. you're concerned about equity. So if you want... Right, because then you can't break down your, your exactly. results based on things like gender or what whatever you want to do. What are women saying? What are men saying? What, what are gender people, divorce anything, people? Exactly. Anything. So if, you're in, if you are concerned about equity issues, right. then generally you, you, have to ask, you have to ask demographic questions that right. help you figure out who those groups are, right. which makes it much easier to, to identify them. Right. Uh, and when you ask other things that are stigmatizing, like... Um, you know, HIV status or um, experience with the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. then you're you're risking very vulnerable people. You're making them more vulnerable, right. and you have to be really sure that it's worth it to them as well yeah. as to your. So program. I, I have a weird. This is yeah, a weird question because this is it's about kind of. Um, it's just I don't know. This is it reminded me of um, uh, in in Venice. Uh -huh. uh, I learned that uh, the Venetians had this incredible library and they kept incredible records. And one of the ways they did that was they brought in these apprentices who would copy pages of books. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to, you know, there's a lot of other interesting stuff around the size of the rats and the cats and all that stuff, but that's all mm -hmm. besides the point. The, um, the thing is that what they would do to ensure security, the doge, is uh, every maximum i think it was six months maybe less they would they would swap these people out yeah um they would only give them one page per book yeah and so each page was from a different book yeah um they came in illiterate and either they would reach the the term of their course or they if they became literate too early they would also have to leave yeah um and this was the idea of like the more uninformed your people working for you are yeah. the less they can share this information because the doge and the venetians understood that the the biggest risk was what you're talking about which yeah. is the people who have access to that That's information right. those are your biggest risks yeah. so their answer in 14 1500 yeah. was to say okay anyone who could know that we're going to make sure they don't yeah. have the information yeah. my question to you it's, it sounds weird coming like this um what do you see are the benefits or do you see one being 
clearly better or different circumstances around um, keeping your own staff or your own people in the dark or actually mm. fully informing them so that they know everything that's going on and kind of uh, they have to carry the weight of their own actions? Well, um, the problem with that approach, the Venetian approach, is that with uh, digital information and data mining, you can aggregate all that information after the fact and then have people uh, look for the patterns. So the, the idea of uh, keeping people ignorant doesn't mm -hmm. work when you can pull it all together. Well, uh, I mean, if I were to make up, if set. I were to make up an example, I'd say you brings people in. They have a set uh, workstation that they don't own, and then for the for the day, they get access to a yeah. file that they don't so, own again. So that um, going back to the threat model, that's assuming that that person in front of the computer is is the problem around the data breach. Right. So, so you're negating that. You're you're trying to say that they can't be right. You're trying to say they can never be one. Well, let's. Uh, Let's come back to that question, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, so look, looking at how one manages the threat to privacy, um, mm -hmm. the first one is informed consent. This is for the people you're taking information this is from. This evaluation, that's right, yeah. exactly. And, and so being um, part of informed consent might say, um, we're going to uh, hold this data for uh, uh, two years, and then we're going to delete it. Like, right. you have to be clear about how you're using the data, what it's for, and so on. But th and this is specifically, just to clarify, the people you're getting data from, not your staff or anything. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the second um, uh, approach is to minimize collecting any information about any personal data. Right. So, so demographic just don't even data, collect it if you don't, don't need it. even ask. That's right. If you don't have a really good reason for asking yeah. personal data, don't do it. Because the more data you ask, the more vulnerable they are and the easier it is to figure out who it is. So that point, you're solving security and you're saving time and energy. Exactly. And all that stuff. That's right. Uh, reducing uh, the burden of data collection on right. everybody concerned. Um, right. And then the trade-off is, you know, reduction in, in uh, the dense... Analysis. Uh, yes. And, yeah. um, then the third approach is... Encryption. So mm -hmm. you've got the data. Um, make sure it's encrypted so that if somebody downloads it or shares it or your computer is stolen, mm -hmm. um, that it's impossible to read. Right. Now, uh, encryption need is, is difficult to manage because if, if it's properly encrypted with a good password and mm -hmm. you lose the password... <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. It's gone forever. Right. Um, uh, if if uh, one person has the encryption key and then they leave or they get sick, it's gone. Or they... Yeah, turncoat. <laughs> oh, not, not even a security risk. So right. it's just encryption is... Just uh, things getting lost. The, the, uh, the reason that I've seen that people don't put encryption in place is that mm -hmm. they're scared about what happens if they're not managing the password. And so you've got to have really good processes in place to manage the password. Right. Um, and it needs to be accessible by the right person. Right, because the password's only as good as where it's saved it, as a it backup. It needs to be saved, really. and then who has access to that, and so on. So yeah. not not so easy, mm -hmm. but completely essential. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, you need uh, uh, the the fourth mm -hmm. um, uh, approach is role based permissions, and so role based permissions right. mean only certain people get access to certain kinds of information. And you were talking about that with the Venetian approach. But I guess that's kind of the Venetian model is that's an extreme example of role-based permissions. permissions. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, in in unsophisticated um, 
uh, we can call the 1400s system. unsophisticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah but even now, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've seen it like lots of uh, situations where an organization, for example, might have a SurveyMonkey account. Right. And then you give 10 people the SurveyMonkey account name and password. Because all of a sudden you don't they have access to every single every, response. All of a sudden they, they have access to their uh, all of the survey responses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that's an example of very poor control. Yeah. Role-based permissions. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, at logical outcomes, mm-hmm. um, where y- you don't give people just um, you know data entry uh, account that you can trade around, because that's right. uh, it's bad practice. So every yeah. individual has to have an account, and that account needs to have the proper permissions. Right. And it, it is not a good practice to share it with somebody else. Right. Um, right. And uh, so role-based permissions is another hassle because you well, have to think through what exactly do you need. And and companies no have realized more. this because they yeah. use it as their pricing model yeah. uh, models, right? Where yeah. the one uh, it's, So it's this interesting thing where um, companies, even like logical outcomes, yeah. uh, when we're trying to test a new piece of technology or something on a trial base yeah. or, or a free mo- model... Um, we're incentivized to use one exactly. login because yeah. it's free. Yeah. And if we use the multi-login, it becomes a lot That's of money. Right. Yeah. And you say, well, can we afford this and everything? And it's uh, you end up trying to save some money, but then without thinking, you've opened this huge exactly. security risk. That's right, exactly. Yeah, uh, uh, you've got it. And uh, so if you're serious about privacy, it mm-hmm. means that you have to think through every way that one can access personal data. So another one that we haven't uh, uh, talked about is um, what organizations have access to the data. So if you are using Google Analytics, for example, um, Mm -hmm. because you want to find out how many people visit your website, well, Google Analytics uh, collects all kinds of information about your visitors, including IP addresses and so on. You could figure out who they are from the IP addresses, which is personal data. So all of a sudden, Google has access to personal data about people visiting your evaluation website. (laughs) Was that intentional? Do they understand that Google has access to that? And how are you Going using... Going back to consent. Exactly. Right. That's right. Right, right, right. So GDPR compliance, um, very difficult to do, very expensive. We spent about a year and a half of work going through every tiny little piece of uh, uh, GDPR compliance. We hired an analyst who specializes in it. We've, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, we wrote a technical report that we posted <laughs> on <laughs> Zenodo for people who are interested. <laughs> it's already totally obsolete because as we work through each oh, technical wow. um, problem, we come up with different ways of handling personal data, which we then check out with our GDPR analyst, mm-hmm. and then he documents it right. to make sure that we maintain compliance. Okay. So I'm still, I'm still interested in terms of your, per, um, from your perspective as as someone who is involved with setting up uh, security models and stuff, mm-hmm. especially for logical outcomes as mm-hmm. well as some other clients and analyzing them. Um, uh, this Venetian model of like kind of strict um, breaking things up so much that the individual pieces parts don't know what they're dealing with really of your organization um versus i guess the other made-up example would be giving a small group of people huge amounts of data and then trusting them with it and hoping that they know what they're doing um i'm interested in it's obviously very very broad so you can kind of 
turn it into a specific example if you'd like. But in, do you see both having value or do you see one kind of being not very useful anymore or having different risks yeah. associated or being more applicable in different areas? Um, I guess my but, the yeah. reason I ask is because I say like in the 21st century, I would think... You know, my, uh, n before thinking about it, <laughs> my knee-jerk reaction would be that, well, everyone in today's world should be fully informed and know what they're doing and be a part of the kind of team. Um, but as we talk about the securities, you know, sometimes it's just better not to have access, obviously, some people. Uh, and then the question is, how many people... But, yeah, I don't know. I I'm, I'm losing... Yeah, um... The uh, a, a, a related thing to threat model is risk model, right? <laughs> so with the risk, let's talk about the risks to the um, client. Mm -hmm. So a client comes into uh, a health um, a social service facility. Yep. Uh, I used to work at the Canadian Hearing Society, uh, so it was deaf, deaf, and hard of hearing people. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you wanted social services and you were deaf and used sign language, there wasn't a whole lot of places you could go to. Right. And so a deaf person comes in. Uh, they've got employment service. They've got um, uh, audiological services, mental health services, uh, and we set up an AIDS uh, um, uh, aid service as well. And it's all in the same. People with it. It's all in the same um, okay. organization. Yeah. Uh, and many of the staff people are deaf, deaf, and hard of hearing, and it's a small community. So right. if there's any sharing about information, uh, it can um, it can spread as gossip through the whole community. Right. So somebody sees you walking into the HIV. Uh, services area, yeah. then all of a sudden your whole network knows that you're going into the AIDS, um, uh, mm -hmm. AIDS services or the mental health services. Right, right. Uh, and, and so that's uh, the risk model. If you're in a small community, say a small town, and mm -hmm. you go into um, the diabetes clinic, well, then mm -hmm. people uh, can uh, say, well, either that person or a family member has diabetes. That could have an influence on your employability. Right. And, and so that's um, oh, anything to do with health or social services. Just the fact of getting services is, um, can be stigmatizing. Sure. And it's not something that can be easily solved. You so mean removing the stigma? or? It, oh, it's not uh, uh, removing the risk of um, uh, the privacy risks. So, right. so you're thinking about a uh, small town, you've got a mall, mm -hmm. and you've got a youth employment uh, service in there, and you see young people going to youth employment services, no problem. Right. I mean, youth... It happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they need jobs, they find jobs. This is not hugely stigmatizing. Yeah. The HIV clinic, that's a problem um, yeah. for... Um, well, in living in Toronto, or yeah. anyone who lives in a big city, I yeah. think we're more used to an an the anonymity of the city, yeah. where, where you can walk into any building, really, and most of the people are not going to pay attention because exactly. they don't know you, but yeah. the smaller not the town, the easier. Not the case in a small community. Or in a community. Uh, so you've got immigrant service uh, centers. So yeah. You've got settlement services where uh, most of the staff people may be in the same um, at the cultural group that you're in. Yeah. And... Yeah. Uh, um, the receptionist sees who you're going, uh, you know, and yeah. and uh, yeah. they they might be trained in confidentiality, but they they'll talk. So I'm talking here yeah. not about digital information. I'm talking about the problems yeah. uh, about controlling the. Um, no, it's good because this is the type of it's it's funny how how many how many 
how broad security and personal yeah. privacy is. Yeah. And and it's it's funny because I mean, obviously, I always go to the, like the the movie examples and these people who are conning people or trying to sneak through the security devices or anything like that. Um, and it's all fun in movies because it's, there's a plot to it. But you kind of realize how how easy things actually are to yeah. just kind of pass. And and uh, when you say you know you can be trained in in confidentiality, but still let it go, it's it's very easy. You know, you think about something. You say, I've been trained in this. I know the importance of this. But I'm just gossiping. That's not exactly. important. Yeah. And it's like this disconnect between the two. But they, yeah. as if they're not related. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. but that kind of connects to, to your what you said about the idea of of people not respecting the importance of it. Yeah. And really un- feeling uh, what it means. It takes years to absorb um, the principles of confidentiality. Mm. It, it's uh, it, it, it's um, easy to say. It's easy to sign off on a, on a confidentiality agreement. Right. Um, uh, you know, my whole family it is, mm-hmm. is we've we've got my mother's a psychiatric social worker. My right. aunt was a psychiatric nurse. My <laughs> <laughs> sister's a rehabilitation counselor. I was a clinical psychologist. Right. Um, and uh, so it was the family business. Right. <laughs> Security. <laughs> well, yeah. And privacy. confidentiality, yeah. privacy. Um, it, it, when in in real life, I've seen over and over again, um, well-intentioned, caring people break rules around privacy and confidentiality because it hasn't, uh, it doesn't go deep. So, sending uh, private information on email because somebody uh, asked for it, um, a, you mm. know, unsecured email, it happens constantly, and the only way to stop that and i'm talking digital information now again um first of all having um systems that prevent that from happening so making it impossible for somebody to uh send personal information like for example you can't copy paste or you can't can't do this or can't access this or or, um i'm really impressed with microsoft um 365 and and how they're incorporating security um right now um you can you can um uh tag uh categorize um security issues um uh, such that if i send an email with something that looks to Microsoft as though it's a social insurance number, it won't send the email. It'll say, we notice that there's something in this email that might be an issue around your privacy. Wow. Uh, and so, y- you can, uh, so you can automate some of that. Um, but it's right. even better to make it impossible for somebody to um, send personal information because they shouldn't have access to it. Right. Unless there's a, a real reason for them to require it. Right, right. So I guess the intention is to, correct me if I'm wrong, I guess the intention is you want to minimize the kind of unintentional, exactly. like, oh, I, I just thought they asked for it and I thought That's it'd right. be, or he said he was a friend of so-and-so, That's or, right. or yeah. I was curious, and, and kind of the, the kind of a little, not, not, not being, not taking it seriously enough. Yeah. Um, and, and also, of course, just, make sure that people who who aren't supposed to have access at all like external mm-hmm. people um don't have access and that can be through encryption or through any other number of methods but there's also uh what what you become left with is this remainder of of people who 
may intentionally try to... Okay, so that comes back to the threat model. So, uh, as you say, that um, the the uh, approaches for privacy is mm. you make it so that the information is only available to people that have a real need for it. Right. Um, and that uh, there's some element of informed consent, that uh, that they have a legitimate uh, need for it that has been approved by the people that are providing that personal information. Right, so to put and another word, no one's looking at the data that, that was given by people. Exactly. Who those people, like the people who gave the data consented to whoever's right. looking at it. That's right. Um, and uh, and that the people that get access to those data are, are well-trained and, and uh, also that there's auditing going on. And so that uh, which you is can monitoring of what people have been monitoring. Doing. Yeah, it's like that's strange. That, mm. You know, that person should not have uh, opened that file. I wonder what was going on, and to be able to follow that up because people are much more likely to follow rules if they know that they may be caught. Right. So this is the idea of having like digital logs that can be the digital audited. logs right. exactly. <laughs> and and by saying uh, um, and then you were asking about uh, bad actors. Yeah. So. Um, there are definitely hackers. There are definitely people that go after um, uh, breaches. Generally, they don't. They're less likely to go after small social service agencies. There's lot a lot of money in a small social. Uh, Which is interesting because once again, going back to us saying national security yeah, earlier, that's right. exactly. you know, you're in this field that doesn't. The Russian government is unlikely to be yeah. going to the youth employment center in. So that's not a <laughs> that's North not Bay a really viable world. risk analysis in terms of when you're building your. You're not. It's you're, not a major. Threat. You're not considering these kind that's of right. uh, other. What is it? State actors or ex state, yeah. yeah, these kind of however, other. However, however. Um, the uh, like the U.S. government with the Homeland Security, um, mm -hmm. that was uh, frightening to those of us in privacy who said, "Well, who would care about our little uh, organization?" The Homeland Security's ambitions were so massive, and they were uh, from they wanted our to perspective, grab information from everyone based on you know I'm reading the news. Yeah, they they were yeah. sucking in huge amounts of information. And so we use Microsoft Office 365 because they are designed for uh, state actors. Right. And so we rely on extremely sophisticated um, uh, privacy and security protections mm -hmm. um, within the Microsoft ecosystem. Right. And uh, part of our design is that we almost never go outside the Microsoft ecosystem because as soon as you're working with another platform, you have you have to... All that data has to transfer. You to, exactly. You've got the transfer itself. Uh, so it's going from Microsoft to somewhere else mm -hmm. or vice versa. And then you have that platform like the Google Analytics. You have to understand where that information is. So now you've right. doubled your problem because you're dealing with two vendors, two ecosystems. Mm -hmm. And so um, what for a small... in. Um, organization like us, uh, it, it's best to remove your, ex uh, reduce your exposure to threat right. by keeping within one ecosystem that you feel pretty strongly about. And then within that, you can focus your privacy protections on the specific threat model of your information. Am I making sense? So we don't have to worry about um, the U.S. government, the Russian government, because Microsoft is worrying about that. Right. We do have to worry about um, our internal staff, volunteers, people that have legitimate access to mm -hmm. our our systems. Yeah. And we also have to worry about Microsoft itself, and we have to worry about subpoenas. 
Right, because Microsoft may be, may be subpoenaed by the American government exactly. That's right. to give them access to their servers. Exactly. So it doesn't mean it removes the risk, but it means it focuses them on uh, risks that we can then handle by, for example, having a different level, a layer of encryption that Microsoft doesn't have access to, so that even if there was a subpoena mm -hmm. or something similar, that they would have to get, uh, somebody would have to get the encryption key somewhere else. Wow. Mm-hmm. So there's a funny thing that um, from from modeling uh, for photography and uh, in that world, uh, which I've a little funny expression, which is that if it's if you feel comfortable, then it doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. If you're feeling comfortable, these, you're not paying these attention. models. Yeah, these models have to hold these horrible positions. Yeah. and it sounds like security is. You oh know, yeah. If if it feels like you can access and work with the data easily, oh I see. Then there's then there's probably a lack of security or something. Ah, uh, that's a good point. Like multi-factor authentication being a good example. Or or uh, yeah, that's one. Or I was thinking of uh, the idea of oh, I'll just download this and work on uh, offline. Yeah. So yes. Yeah. Right. Kind of the the more and, the and, more you can avoid is, some issues and say, oh, I just want to yeah, speed through this. And, and this these are the things up, that open yes. up these gaps, right? And and you're bringing up um, there's a security theater means um, uh, people acting as though they're being secure, and there's nothing <laughs> underneath it, right? It's like truthiness. Truthiness. Yeah. So yeah. Um, security theater is a whole. You know. Oh yeah, we got you to sign a 16-page document that said that you followed all of these, right. you know, rules. Right. Yeah. In real life, um, people take their computers home. Yeah. In real life, people um, in in our uh, situation, most of the people we hire are freelancers. Mm -hmm. We don't know how they manage their computers. We don't know who where they their passwords are. We don't know how they manage are. their passwords. We don't know who has access to them. So they may yeah. uh, allow family members to have access to their computers. Right to their profiles. Yeah. 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 So. Um, there are certain things that we can say, say look, you're a professional. Uh, we have a code of conduct. We mm -hmm. ask people to sign the code of conduct. Mm -hmm. It includes things like you never uh, share your user account on your computer with somebody else. Yeah. Um, but then how do we assure that? Well, the way we can assure that is by using Microsoft Office 365. Mm -hmm. I'm sounding like an ad. You know, I don't mean to. But, um, <laughs> Microsoft will be happy. Uh, well, they're, they're really impressive. And... You, we by using um, an online space that takes a second layer of sign-in, like yeah. multi-factor authentication, mm -hmm. um, you can prevent phishing attacks. You can prevent a family member coming in and wandering around because yeah. they might have access to the physical computer, but they won't have access to the online space. Right, and setting up things that auto auto log out whenever exactly. you close. Exactly, that's that's kind of all thing. All that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So some of this we can audit, and some we can't. Mm -hmm. um, um, most of what we do is consulting work. It doesn't involve personal data. It might involve right. organizational uh, confidentiality stuff, like embarrassing. Well, things. that's a good point, actually, that you're yeah. s you're pointing out because you know this is this is that point where I'm kind of thinking of people listening, maybe if anyone listens, um, and kind of say, you know, these are the this is where you have to think about, right? Like um, these are what you just what we just jumped over, yeah. like you know, setting things up so that you have a profile that's password protected that other people don't have access to, setting up your browser so that it auto logs out of everything yeah. once you close the window. Yeah. These are little security um, things that anyone can set up. Keeping your operating system up to date and the virus definitions up yeah. to date. Like these, these are very, very important small things that anyone could do yeah. and will, will immediately increase 
your level of security exactly, immediately. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's kind of... Uh, it's just good data hygiene. <clears throat> right, yeah. exactly. Good data hygiene, like how to, how, to, how to maintain yourself. And then I guess what's, what I was thinking is like what... Um, I, I, I was kind of thinking like what... I, I guess I, I lost my train of thought because I was just kind of wanting to point out this idea that... Oh, but this is good. So, so we, at Logical Outcomes, we have uh, consulting, evaluation consulting, mm -hmm. and then we have a service information system. The right. service information system is an evaluation platform. It collects data that often includes personal data. Right. And we deal with them really differently. We've got two different security models. Okay. For Logical Outcomes... Um, we might be doing um, policy uh, analysis or um, an evaluation that has information about an organization. So, you know, we, you serve 60 people in this program and mm -hmm. it costs this much. Um, our rule is never to share personal data in email. Right. Ever. If anybody sees anybody sharing personal information, uh, personal data on email, they uh, they uh, agree in their code of conduct to report it to their project manager or um, somebody else in the organization so that we can handle it. So this is a by design, yeah. nothing, per, no personal data must use that. So if yeah. somebody sh uh, shares their their email or is sloppy about their email, it may be embarrassing. It may be unprofessional. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's not going to threaten somebody's personal privacy. Well, as as logical outcomes operates almost exclusively online. Yeah. I guess my question would be, how do logical outcomes consultants share personal data if they can't use email? Yeah. And you're trying to be secure. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, this is another so. Um, is like Teams is encrypted? Is Microsoft Teams? Oh yeah, definitely. So the idea is using exactly. using a streaming voice to voice or face to face. Like that would be safer because it's the because the. This is another kind of black hole here. So um, it like it's. It's like you can't use computers to share information, but how do you share information? So yeah, let let me um, go back a little bit and say personal data does include the um, phone number and addresses of our consultants themselves. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is covered under GDPR. The personal, if somebody, if we mm -hmm. hire somebody and they're working out of their home office, then their address is personal data. Right. And right. that does get shared by email. It, we don't see it as being um, highly uh, risky. Mm -hmm. And it's... Um, uh, in the agreement that we have with our freelancers. Like, right. it's informed consent. You want to work with us, you have to give us this information, this is how we're protecting it. Right. Um, if uh, somebody comes to us and says, I want you to remove me from your data sets, mm -hmm. I want to be wiped from uh, emails throughout uh, yeah. logical outcomes, we can do that because Microsoft has that capacity. Okay, wow. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, so that is personal data. It's low risk because right. they're w working with us. Now, the personal data that I'm anxious about is uh, clients of agencies that are filling out personal information about themselves. That's under CIS. Right. So CIS is um, in... Uh, that's managed in uh, separate uh, SharePoint sites. It's got different rules from the uh, sites that um, Logical Outcomes uses for consulting. It has uh, um, 
people who are screened differently. It's it's handled. It, it, there's kind of firewalls between right. CIS and the rest of the organization. Mm-hmm. And what's uh, the thing that I had forgotten to kind of also touch on uh, was the idea that corporate information is not the same as personal information. That's right. Exactly. There's confidential organizational information, mm-hmm. and then there's personal data. Right. Different. And those are very different. Totally different. And GDPR covers personal data. Covers personal data. Uh, you may have contracts around the company's information, but that's not covered by GDPR. That's right, exactly. So you don't need to worry about a company's information or their address or a company's exactly. uh, corporate number that's or right. anything like that. Or embarrassing that's not things about the company. Right. Like there's th- a lot, lots of stuff that is justifiably highly confidential that's it's organizational information. It just and isn't covered by GDPR because exactly. it's, pro- it's not personal information. That's right, exactly. And it gets handled right. differently. Right, interesting. Interesting. So uh, the thing that um, I want to, I had asked you about kind of like scary stories and you mentioned throwing computers off of the roof. And I wanted to kind of come back to, before we wrap up, because we were going for a while now, um, the idea of what's the worst thing that happens in Canada, potentially, or things that almost maybe were avoided or things that happened or, um, because in a country that doesn't have civil wars, in a country that... happen all the time. Mm -hmm. And... uh, so all the time, somebody will see uh, a, a neighbor walk into a clinic and, and to spread the, the story. All mm-hmm. the time, people's reputations are ruined by um, breaches of health and social service information. Right. And um, uh, our job is to uh, not, we have an ethical responsibility to prevent that, to protect people. And uh, so I can't think of um, I can't think of an example in Canada of a big breach affecting lots of people. I know that there are. I could look it up. It's a good question. Um, I mean, specifically in your field. Yeah. Because I know that there was like um, there was some dating website that all the user information was released. Ashley Madison. Most of those people were from Ottawa, I think. Like 50% <laughs> of the people were from Ottawa. That I can't remember. Oh, that was the best. Yeah, the funniest mm-hmm. part was obviously someone went, went and dug through the, the user yeah. profiles. And of, yeah. of course, most of them were fake or a mm-hmm. lot of them were fake. Mm-hmm. But of the real ones, I think a good half were from Ottawa. And it was kind of like, oh, this is where the Canadian um, people working for the government go to hook up with, mm-hmm. you know, uh, extramaritally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just this... They only kind of found it out once they had all those, had all the access to all the... the yeah, actually, Madison, that was a big breach. That's a good example. Right. And, and then you get... Uh, but the data set is out there on the web, and there. then people dig in and figure out who uh, yeah. people are. And, and and they just do it because yeah. they're curious, or they'll get money out of the yeah. results that they you know they can yeah. sell, maybe. Yeah. Um, and that was not... Uh, the only... I can think of it because it was a big deal at the time. Um, it the, the difference is that it's not... You know, that's a dating website that was hacked. It's yeah. not uh, a government or a, a organization, or it's not a nonprofit, right? So it's a little bit different. But I mean, I guess um, the go-to health example is is around um, STI monitoring or you know any type yeah. of HIV. But also w- within an organization, wh- I have heard many um, ex- ex- like the survey monkey example I was mm-hmm. talking about before um, I, I heard from um, uh, a colleague in another organization that there was a employee survey that went out P- 
people were asked very detailed questions about the organization, right. then somebody else who had the same account could go in and uh, and read all of the responses. Um, this this happens often, right. um, or uh, I've seen. Um, uh, clients be asked sensitive information and in good faith answer um, openly openly and then the information gets shared among managers and people figure out who it is and then they may or may not have official penalties but uh, these people are vulnerable vulnerable so uh, it's this low level <laughs> I guess I, I, I think about the high-level breaches and, and being in the papers, but uh, I'm more inclined mm -hmm. to think about low-level harms where people's reputation within their own communities, uh, within the, um, the, the services, mm -hmm. get damaged be because it's uh, spread around. Yeah, hearing that, it's interesting because I guess the, the scale of these breaches that you're talking about, uh, obviously they can get into the, the large scale, yeah. uh, talking about having to throw computers off of a roof because of a war. Yeah. Um, but it seems like in a, in a country like Canada, uh, these types of things largely exist uh, in a kind of personal individual scale if they're not affecting entire client groups and stuff. Um, I, but I think I have to look at the research because, well, because I haven't been... Uh, maybe not to generalize yeah. here, but I think what I'm trying to, to bounce off of, yeah. to react to, yeah, I guess, yeah. is, is that you're, you're saying the, what I'm hearing is you're saying that uh, this the state of security is such a big deal in this sector not because these breaches regularly upend the entire uh, society yeah. or that they put huge amounts of people at mortal risk yeah. uh, as it might happen in other countries uh, or in the past mm -hmm. but but what it does is it it can have massive very real impacts on someone's career on their reputation yes, exactly. on on their place in a community or in in their job or any number of things but it's the scale is such that it it affects that person maybe they're uh, they're um they're harmed they're harmed yeah. in a very real way that's right and our job and is to prevent harm not not to increase their risk of harm not to right. mess up their family relationships and other relationships yeah exactly with their jobs and their communities and that it can come it can affect anyone who's dealing with this information or or is is around this personal information it yeah. can be the people who are the staff it can be the people who have given the information mm -hmm. um and and any one of them can be wronged from someone else uh, without malice yeah. because it can just be a mistake. Yeah. Um, just saying the wrong thing or not saying the wrong thing or any, you know, yeah. any, any yeah. number of... And that's the kind of trouble with talking about the security is it's not, it, it, it's not about one thing that you always have to do or one yeah. thing you must never do. It's yeah. the idea that um, saying the wrong thing or not saying the wrong thing uh, to a specific person can lead to this unraveling of uh, security, and then yeah. you end up with someone as simple as someone walking into a clinic yeah. can become uh, a fireable thing, or, or really affects well, like like Google Street View. Remember before they uh, disguised started, the people? Started, yeah, started yeah. People. It's like, well, that's interesting. I wonder what he was doing walking into that establishment. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. yeah. So even Google's had to to deal with personal. Mm -hmm data, mm -hmm. uh, and even then I'm sure people could identify themselves and figure all that stuff out if they wanted to based on Google Street View. But, yeah, yeah. But it is, it's, it's very interesting, and I think for, for, 
for myself, I think of data security, and I immediately with with cybersecurity, I immediately go to the the large scale national exactly. security That's stuff. That's right. Yeah. And if it's not affecting my entire country or the the civilization, That's right. uh, then it's really not. You know, then just you know, well, too bad. You shouldn't have done that. You know, or yeah. you should have That's encrypted right. it. Yeah. But the reality of what's kind of funny is it reminds me of the this honor based societies we would have lived in from the 1920s or the 1700s where it's like oh you know we saw you in a in a bad irreputable part of town and exactly, maybe right. it's not uh, it it may it may not uh, um change the world <laughs> that's right and it may not be something that's in the front page right, of, yeah. of of the globe and mail but it could certainly wreck your reputation Right, it could ruin a career. It, it could, could get you fired. Really destroy your uh, your life, in or a way. just or just embarrass you. Right, which is also a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's also yeah. a lot. Embarrassment is worse for some people that's than right. a lot of things. That's right. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So it's that's interesting. So this, and I, I keep I keep coming back to this Venetian model mm. because the Venetian model to me is, I guess, um, the idea of. Of whether it's whether it's good to keep people in the dark who work with you, or whether it's good to be, keep people as informed as possible, and from what you've been just kind of what we've been talking about, plus the idea of informed consent, um, it seems like there is a line where certain people should just never have access to anything. The role-based permission stuff. Yeah, should be right. Uh, yes, there's need, definitely need a know. lot of people that but shouldn't. Let's, let's look at the Venetian model because. Um, in a social service uh, agency, th- if you're talking about somebody who's a counselor, that counselor knows huge amounts about your life. Right. You know, they uh, so tremendous amount of information, and you just hope that they are adequately trained and supervised, and um, they're responsible and ethical, and they don't uh, talk yeah. about you. The yeah. receptionist doesn't need to know any of that except. Uh, your name, emergency contacts, and address. That's personal data as well. Mm-hmm. But the receptionist uh, doesn't need as much training around confidentiality, but uh, you know, the, it has to have other kinds of security controls. Now, the Venetian model you're talking about, um, th- I would say that's uh, equivalent to the evaluation analyst who then gets information from the receptionist around, you know, interesting the social network around uh, emergency contacts and the location uh, around where people live and also gets the progress notes from the psychotherapist and also gets information from Facebook and ties it together with information from Google. And uh, because it's possible to put together data sets and Mm -hmm. then figure out how to link them together, Mm -hmm. the analyst potentially has incredible amounts of information that can be brought to bear against an individual. The in in the Venetian model you didn't have those kinds of data sets. Right. So, so when you talk about the people being kept separately, when it depends on what person you're talking about. Are you talking about the the analyst that in Venice, well, I'm sure the analyst Venice brought it all together no, and I'm tied sure. it together. These people who these people who I was talking about, they're 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 kind of edit, they're copiers. Mm-hmm. Right? These are people who are who are copying books and, yeah. and accounts. So they weren't they weren't uh, going to be doing any analysis. But the idea was that if they could. Okay, so here's an ex- example of the way uh, th- this is analogy. We we use um, crowdsourcing sometimes. So mm-hmm. micro workers yeah. um, in. Um, uh, Mechanical Turk is an example. Mm-hmm. So say you've got uh, uh, interviews, open-ended interviews, and you want some people to transcribe it and then to code it. 
Right. So uh, if you have a very sensitive inf- interviews and you send them out to hundreds of microworkers mm-hmm. who are, you know, all over the world, it's possible that um, you could do some privacy damage around that. Like you could figure out who somebody is from the interview itself. Okay. And the way that researchers deal with that is to chop up an interview in the same way you're talking about with Okay, Venice. so this is... So you're dealing with segments that are maybe one or two minutes long. And the person and giving the interview doesn't know how it's connected to other exactly. segments. Exactly. So right. you've stripped it of identifying information. You chop up the uh, information. Uh, the micro worker might uh, transcribe it or interpret it, translate it, yeah. and then code it. But they, they can't tie it together with any other piece so of So this is exactly interview. the model so I was that, talking yeah, about. exactly. And yeah. what's interesting is... For sure that's done. So those models still exist. It's, it's Definitely. But what you're talking about is great because it's these well, micro workers who are now going to be around the world doing stuff. And, yeah. And you can't ensure that they're going to be good actors. You can't ensure that they're going to read the security stuff or that they'll even follow it if they want to. Yeah, and who knows who's using their computers and who knows how many viruses are on the computer. (laughs) And that's so that's one of those, this is like a risk risk and threat. That's right, exactly. Uh, So you start to say, um, we'll, we'll, you set it up t- for the microworkers so that it's absolutely impossible for them to connect the You're dots. You're pessimistic. That's right. You don't. You don't say I'm going to pretend. Like, you know, I'm going to pretend that these people are high-minded, ethical, highly trained. Mm-hmm. That uh, nobody else touches their computer and so on. That would be ridiculous. But that's what. But it's very interesting because what's what's interesting is like there's two. You can you can you can have security. You can design security uh, with. With uninformed and with informed right. a- uh, actors, yeah, and the design has to be different. Exactly, right? with the uninformed actors, you can do it. You just have to kind of split it up in a certain way, and That's you have to right. make yeah. sure that they won't have access to it. And with informed actors, uh, you can give them a lot more exactly. control and, and ability to, to work on their own. That's right. Uh, but then you have to make sure you can trust them, and you have That's to right. be able to audit them or That's follow through. That's or right. Exactly. That sort of thing. Exactly. Interesting. I think it sounds like a good place to end. It's right, pretty thank natural. You. Thank you. Let's uh, wrap that up. So thank you again for listening to uh, my interview with Dr. Gillian Kerr. Uh, my name again is Coy, and this was The Annex. Please subscribe, like, leave comments about how great this is or, or how we could improve. Uh, after listening to that whole thing about monitoring and evaluations, we want honest, actionable feedback. So until next time, uh, have a great one.